You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. I got nothing going on. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, any regular listener of this show will probably not be surprised at my squinty-eyed mistrust of Dave Ramsey. Having gone through his Financial Peace University myself, I tell people when pressed, you know, good advice, but what a jerk. Uh, yet, uh, any quick survey of middle-brow Christian culture will demonstrate that his vision of Christian financial responsibility is dominant right now. Someday we'll do, probably do a show about Ramsey and financial peace, but it shall not be this day. Today, I'm blessed to have Krista Lee uh, Chuvala and Elizabeth Grady Harper on the show to talk about a Christian vision of economics uh, that is much more exciting. Uh, my guests represent an economic discipleship program called Lazarus at the Gate, and I'm really excited to share this with you, my dear listener. Uh, ladies, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? Hi, we're really excited to be here. Um, I'm Elizabeth, one of the two directors of the Boston Faith and Justice Network. And as you said, we um, are connected with a study called Lazarus at the Gate. And I'll let uh, my co-director, Krista, introduce herself. Yes. Hi, I'm Krista Lee Shavala. I'm the second co-director of Lazarus at the Gate. And um, we're really pleased to be able to talk about um, uh, Lazarus at the, the Lazarus at the Gate study and Boston Faith and Justice Network in general. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm, I'm, believe me, the thanks are all on my end. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Um, I have to uh, give a shout out to our, uh, as I call it, intrepid press liaison, Kristen Filippic. Uh, she's the one who made this connection. And uh, if you don't know about Kristen, you hear her name on at the end of all of our shows on all this on this network. She is really important to what we do, and uh, and this is uh, really her baby. And so um, I would love to uh, uh, just kind of give props to her at this moment. Um, well. Let's get going, though. Uh, it seems to me that this idea is kind of a reaction to the degree to which free market ideologies have kind of disfigured much of the way Christians in America think about money. Uh, now, you can agree or disagree with that if you like. But for you, what is the context of this program and what problem is it trying to solve? 
So yeah, I think Lazarus to the Gate is designed to get people thinking and talking about how they spend money in a countercultural way. So free market economic thinking, the kind that dominates in, in many areas around the world, is driven by this idea of, of scarcity. So never enough, right? And this idea of scarcity creates a lot of fear and has contributed to this culture of instant gratification and competition, which we sort of see in the consumer culture around money in the United States. But as Christians, biblical teachings let us know that we're already living in God's abundance. So we're not living in a culture of scarcity or in an economy of scarcity. And we choose as an act of faith to trust that God's going to provide for us in all ways. And that means that we're free to live outside of the fear of not having enough. So then we're free to give money away to meet needs and to fight injustice. Um, at the same time, each Christian is part of fulfilling that, that call to provide God's abundance. So that means that my generosity and your generosity is part of God's response to other people's needs. So we need to be being generous in order to fulfill God's abundance for other people. So we see generosity as a real spiritual discipline. We're called, no matter where we are, to be contributing generously um, to the needs of others. Um, Elizabeth, do you have something to add to that? So one of the great things I think that Lazarus does that Krista sort of alluded to is, is this idea of um, generosity as a spiritual discipline. So it's, it's opening it up to this light of accountability and community. We don't like to talk about money as a Christian community, maybe particularly as an evangelical Christian community, although I don't want to single out any particular denomination or, or idea of Christian thought, but we don't like to talk about money. We, we want to hold each other accountable in all these other areas, whether it's, um, you know, our prayer lives or our marriages or all of these other things that we're willing to talk about, we're willing to read books about, we're willing to have small groups about, but money seems to be this other area. And one of the great things about Lazarus is, is it opens the idea of money up to the light of community. And we are willing to read scripture about it. We're willing to hold each other accountable about it. We're willing to talk about what did Jesus say about money? How can we follow Jesus with our money? Um, like we do in so many other areas. And that's one of the great, great things about Lazarus. It says, yeah, the Bible talks about money and Jesus talks about money and we are to be accountable to each other about money. Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting to me. You, uh, I think it was Krista had brought up the idea of like fear and scarcity um, as organizing principles behind the way we uh, interact with money in, in America. Let's just limit it to this context. And I wonder if that fear is why we don't like to share these. I mean, it's a, it's a vulnerability that we're talking about here. Am I wrong? No, absolutely. And I think that it's fear on two ends. It's fear of maybe having too much and being judged as Christians for what we actually know Jesus says, but then it's fear of also having too little and judging ourselves by the American standards for what you know the American dream is or what having enough actually is. So on both ends, we don't want to talk about it, right? We don't want to talk about our foibles and how our how we spend our money, how much you know how big our televisions are, or whatever. But we also don't want to talk about um, you know what we don't have sometimes. Yeah. Oh, in addition, though, I mean, I feel like the culture has set us up in such a way that we don't see money as a spiritual discipline, I think, um, as, Elizabeth, as Elizabeth said. And so when we think about our purchasing power, we kind of frame it are, are sort of too often. Let me I don't want to 
speak too categorically here, but too often we frame this in terms of rights as a U.S. citizen. And somewhere along the line, our you know religious culture, our theology even, has been intertwined with this kind of um, consumer capitalism um, that kind of drives America. And, and that, I think, is part of what causes some of the uh, confusion, some of the uh, disjointed ways we think about money. I don't know if you guys have thought about that <laughs> uh, that aspect of of how theology has been uh, combined uh, or or I would say stained a little bit with uh, the way we uh, have organized our money our our society financially. Yeah, I, I I absolutely think you're right. I think we've too often the the theology of money from the Bible has been sort of co-opted by this American dream. And we've substituted one for the other instead of really taking an honest look about particularly with how the new Testament talks about money. Um, there's some great, great books about that. Um, wealth is peril and obligation. I mean, the new Testament almost exclusively talks about it as one or the other. Mm. And as opposed to the American dream where it's just, it's pursuit. Right. And we don't often enough take an honest look at, at what, what, um, the treatment of wealth is in the Bible. I mean, it is a blessing. And we do talk about that in Lazarus. The first principle of Lazarus talks about wealth as something to be grateful for. We don't need to look at it as something um, dirty, as something awful, as something to be guilty about. We should be grateful for it. But then there's this idea that there is there is peril and there is obligation that comes along with it that we need to be cognizant of. Yeah. Right. Well. Wealth is for sharing with the poor. It, it, in the end, that's right. ultimately what it's it's good and we need to share it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the comic book geek in me always grew up with the slogan from Spider-Man about great power and great responsibility. But I mean, it's really, I mean, that is so resonant because of what you're saying. It's, it's, it's something that we inherently know is true. Um, and I, I just want to say that I feel like um, intellectually, we all sort of in, in the Christian world um, know this, right? And, and it's very common to see people in mainstream churches kind of poke fun at the prosperity gospel. So we look at people like Joel Osteen um, and kind of point out the obvious flaws that to, to, to the degree to which he has conflated wealth and, and, and the gospel. Um, but I think what's probably more useful is for us to think about the ways that we internally, like subtly, without even realizing it, right. also <laughs> like fall into those patterns, maybe in more subtle forms. And, and I think mm -hmm. that um, the benefit for, that, from what I can see by looking at your um, curriculum here is it demonstrates to us the way that we may also be in the same um, family as the, as the prosperity gospel, even if we don't think of ourselves as such. Um, A sort of entitlement idea. Yeah. Absolutely. And because we've grown up thinking that it, this is right, this is, uh, like you said, the American dream. And so America as a sort of Christian nation, uh, we, <laughs> you know, uh, one thing leads to the next. Uh, and that's a topic that we've covered at nauseum in this, in this podcast before. But, um, um, well, can you give us a little narrative of the program's history and development? Like, first of all, its name. I didn't write this. Like, uh, what, what inspired? Obviously, I have a guess of what <laughs> inspired the name, but can you explain it? Yeah, so it's it's named after the um, the parable of Lazarus at the gate that Jesus talks about the rich man um, and having the poor beggar Lazarus at his gate. And during his life, you know, Lazarus had to beg for scraps. And then from heaven, you know, the Lazarus is taken up to 
to Abraham's side and the rich man is, is suffering. And, and the parable goes on to talk about how, well, during his life, the rich man received his benefit. And now in the afterlife, Lazarus is receiving um, his reward. And so we talk about the first thing in the first week of the study, we talk about, um, you know, in our life, who are the Lazaruses at our gate and, and sort of challenge ourselves to think about, um, are we the rich man? And, and it's sort of a self evident answer to that question. Um, because in, as most Americans, we are the rich man, not necessarily um, just because of what we're doing and not doing, but just because we are all experiencing wealth in some way um, as we just compare ourselves to the rest of the world. Yeah, and it, so that's that's the basis of the name. I mean, if you live in America and live under a roof with plumbing, right? I mean, you're far more wealthy than almost anybody else in the world, uh, than, than many, many millions of people in the, in the world. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I right. one thing I like about the name at the gate, um, it, it brings up this question of neighbor, uh, like who is my neighbor and who am I responsible for? Right. right? And so, um, I think that that's one, um, kind of moving aspect of the, of the name you've given, but I've interrupted, uh, go ahead and, and continue, please. No, that's fine. I was, that's actually kind of just the, like you said, it's just one of those things where we can sort of pause and ask ourselves that question. And, and we like to take that moment and just consider that at our gate. It, it sort of denotes also that separation because the parable does, does indicate that separation and it allows ourselves to consider that line that separates us. And, and like you indicated, just those things that, that allow us to think about our own wealth, where we sometimes just compare ourselves to maybe our own neighbors that we have similar wealth status too, where we might be allowed to think about, oh, well, I'm not so well off because the people around me have similar wealth, or I know people who are more wealthy than me. Whereas, like you said, if we have a roof over our heads, we have food in our pantries, we have health insurance, we're able to um, educate ourselves, we have, you know, a system around us of support from family and friends that we, we are better off than, than so many people in the world that we pause and consider our own wealth um, in, in comparison to, to so many people. And and we kind of have that as a jumping off point to consider us ourselves as the rich man. And again, who might be at our gate. Yeah. It's an active imagination. And, and I think that that's, uh, it's, it's really powerful. Um, what's the history? How did this, uh, who's responsible for getting this started and, and what's the development? So it was written by um, Dr. Gary Vanderpool, who um, wrote it during his, um, when he was writing his PhD, doing his PhD work, he, actually used to sit on our board. He was very instrumental in the beginning of the Boston Faith and Justice Network. And um, he did it as part of his research on biblical teachings on wealth and um, generosity. And it came out, you know, before Boston Faith and Justice was formed, but very early on in um, BFJN's existence, we became associated with it. It had a couple iterations before its current state and many other people spoke into it um, and it was involved in some churches in Boston that made it part of their curriculum, made it part of sort of their leadership training. Um, Mako Nagasaki, Mako Nagas Nagasawa, I'm sorry, I keep saying his name wrong, Krista. Mako Nagasawa. <laughs> Mako Nagasawa. I'm like, how can I say Mako's name wrong? Because we always just say Mako. Um, and Rachel Anderson, who are two people who have been really closely associated with BFJN too. They were part of the um, the original writing of it as well. And Mako worked for InterVarsity, and so it was it was part of InterVarsity for a while. Mm. And um, so a lot of people were doing it there, um, and some churches in Boston, like I said. It, so a lot of people spoke into it, and it became really an organic thing where people gave feedback on what was working and what was not working. And it, because it's open source, it was able to change and grow with people who did it, with with 
young people who are doing it with people in different phases of their lives. And so it's gone through kind of three major iterations and changes and it's, you know, it's interactive and it has different resources online. And so that's one of the really great things about it is that it, it can change and it can grow. And the biblical resources remain mostly the same. Each study is based on a different, some different passages, but it can grow and change as you interact with the, the pieces about what's going on in the world. Those can get updated and changed um, as you understand global poverty, as you understand local issues that that can get changed. Mm. And so that's one of the really great things about it. Interesting. Um, so I guess one technical question, um, you said it's gone undergone three iterations sort of, um, at what point does the official organization officially change the curriculum that uh, what, what prompt, I, I guess the, I'm, this is more of a logistical question. At what point does the website actually reflect these, uh, kind of, uh, organic changes that happen? That's interesting because the website doesn't doesn't reflect the historical iterations. However, um, we are making a new revision to the curriculum this fall, um, and so we'll we will probably feature both iterations um, on the website at that point. Yep. So it's basically like a periodic sort of check in with the curriculum, and um, um, and you're sort of at that time where it's about to be updated in that way. Okay. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just a technical question that came to mind there. Well, um, um, Elizabeth had mentioned the open source nature of this. Uh, and so unlike Dave Ramsey's product, um, Lazarus at the gate is open source. Anybody can download it and implement it. Um, there's no sort of, um, sign up. There's no charge for any of this. Um, can you talk about some of the reasoning behind that? Sure. So Gary's vision, Gary Vanderpool's vision originally in writing Lazarus is the Gate is that it would be open source and it would remain open source permanently. And um, there were a couple of reasons for that. And first, I think, I think he believes and we agree that a study focused on poverty and generosity should probably not be charged for. Um, mm. If we're focused on being generous, we also are generous with the curriculum and we absolutely stand by that and as as elizabeth was referring to the best thing about an open source study is that it's adaptable to all contexts and can be continually iterated yeah. um mm. and so even though there have been sort of three official revisions it's always being revised even every time a leader does it it has its own revisions and and i think that that was gary's and our vision for lazarus at the gate that you engage as a leader with the curriculum and you bring yourself to it and you tailor it to your to your group members it's a group of maybe 10 or 12 people at a time and you don't know you know what what income levels or backgrounds or um spaces your participants are coming from but if you're very engaged with the with the materials you can add you can take away you can change language and that kind of thing so um and that's really encouraged but the other thing that's great about it is we've created We've been able to use it to create shorter workshops um, based on the study for churches and organizations to introduce some of the principles. Um, we've also been able to combine the principles of the study with teaching more technical budgeting tools like tracking spending, creating a budget, saving, investing, all of those things with this sort of values-based Christian generosity at the core, um, which is an interesting approach. And that's all because we can take that material with its open source nature and adapt it to different different contexts. Mm. Uh, it does create some struggles though for 
especially for us in terms of tracking. So we don't always know who's doing it. Um, Good point. I just thought of this. <laughs> um, we don't always know uh, what kind of experiences they're having. Having so we don't get um, we don't get feedback that could be constructive. We also don't get stories um, all the time. Sometimes we do. But um, but one great thing, one interesting thing about that is we were at a conference in um, Chicago last year. And we sat at a table with someone at a pre-conference session. We didn't know anyone. And we sat next to them and they found out where, who we were, where we were from and that we were running Boston Faith and Justice Network. And they said, oh, is that the people that put out Lazarus at the Gate? We just did that at our church a couple of years ago. I'm in Texas. So we never know how it's going to be used. And that's an amazing thing to have. Uh, yeah. And you said it's also got to be a little scary, right? I mean, it, um, but yeah, it's got to be uh, inspiring at the same time. One of the things that, I mean, it stands out to me that's so interesting about that is that it, it accounts for locality. Like, And so I, for instance, live in rural Pennsylvania. I teach at a little place called Mount Aloysius College. It's a Sisters of Mercy school. And, uh, and we're in coal country, right? And so this sort of program would necessarily have to be different <laughs> um, in, in, than it would be in Boston, per se. Per se. And oh, so um, I think that that's an interesting um, uh, uh, innovation that's possible because of its open source network. It's not this sort of top-down um, uh, programmatic approach, one-size-fits-all one approach to something, right? It allows for the uniqueness of any given community, both in sort of local resources, but also in sort of faith traditions, I would think, um, as well. Um, um, so that, that's great. Um, anything else you guys have to add about that? As far as it, we've, we found it to be very interesting in terms of, um, how it draws people together or connects across different denominational lines. So the small group aspect of it, um, is, you know, very sort of reminiscent of the evangelical tradition, right? Having small groups, focusing on personal religious conviction. And, but sometimes, and this is not always the case, but sometimes the justice and generosity or justice particularly end of things is downplayed, you know, in the evangelical context. Yeah. But then on the other side, we've heard from people in more mainline um, um, churches, Christian churches, that the small group element was so important to them because that wasn't, this kind of small group sharing and community and praying together wasn't necessarily something that they'd received in their churches in their upbringing. Um, and so it does combine that kind of cross, that kind of ecumenical bringing together of different traditions. Yeah. Elizabeth, do you have anything to say about the uh, uh, op reasoning behind the open source uh, nature of this? No, just that basically what Krista said, we do find it challenging to track people, which is fun as an organization, but <laughs> definitely appreciate the nature because it is, it's available to everyone. And we think that's amazing. And it is really fun to run into people who've done it and who've heard of it, who have no connection to us whatsoever and to hear their stories kind of randomly. That's, that's great as a, as a Christian and someone who values this so much, but challenging as someone who runs an organization. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, in particularly in church culture, where so much, I mean, this is across the spectrum from very conservative to very progressive um, traditions of Christianity. Uh, so much is made of doctrine and and sort of being on the right page, right? And and and, and so this kind of puts everybody, I think, in a little bit out of their comfort zone <laughs> because you don't necessarily you can sort of adapt it to your particular. Uh, 
theological context. And so I'm thinking of a, a hypothetical situation. If there is a very conservative uh, congregation somewhere in the South, say, uh, that uh, wants to sort of pull their money, they can, like you say, sort of downplay perhaps the, the justice element of this, if that stands it, if that feels too much like liberation theology for them, for example, uh, they can sort of uh, downplay that a bit and, and just sort of focus on the aspects of this and, and emphasize the aspects of this that do suit their tradition. And there's no way for you guys to stop them from doing that. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not necessarily bad. Right. I mean, there's no way for us to stop them, but we can also, we benefit from all the different adaptations and the fact that the message in, in a form is, is moving out yeah. to people. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, um, it's a unifying enterprise then is something that brings exactly. the body together from all of its uh, various in incarnations. And so, um, no, I think that the, it's, there's something rather beautiful about that to me, I think. And so uh, yeah. I think that's really cool. Well, I, I don't wonder if the listener can even conceive of what we're talking about yet. Uh, this is, let's get, talk some nuts and bolts here. Um, can you, uh, this is set up uh, to be like an eight week curriculum. Um, yep. What does it actually look like in operation? What are people signing up for when they download and set up a group for Lazarus at the gate? Okay, so um, it actually used to be a 12 week study um, and that was a little daunting. So it's been um, pared down to eight weeks. And one of the more radical elements of it is um, in the beginning, the groups actually share their budgets. And so that's a really vulnerable piece of it. But um, it's, again, this is one of the more open things and groups can do it in different ways. So um, some groups decide to actually share numbers. They bring out their spreadsheets or their post-it notes or however they do their budgets. And they share, I spend this much on my mortgage and this much on my groceries or whatever. Um, but groups can also share in different ways. They can share percentages. I spend this percent of my budget on this and this and that, um, or they can share categories. So there's different ways groups can share budget. So it's sort of a sliding scale of vulnerability, depending on how they want to do it. But in one way or another, groups do share their budgets. So it's this idea, again, that our money and the things we do with our money is not something private. In, in some ways, we need to open this up to the light of community. Um, and so that's done in the beginning. And, so, and that creates a lot of fear for people. Um, yeah. It can create fear, especially at the beginning, um, whether you are with people that you've known for a while or not. Um, we, had, we had one person tell us that he was shaking when he shared his budget, but then in the end, there was something incredibly liberating about yeah. doing that sharing. Yeah, I yeah. can imagine from my own, like if I had to tell people what I spend every month on coffee and streaming services for entertainment, right. I would probably be really embarrassed about that, right? And so, <laughs> so yeah, um, go right ahead. Yeah, no, but right, exactly. And I think everyone who's done this feels the same way. So there's that community sense too. Um, and this idea that there doesn't need to be shame around it, but accountability and this idea of, we we're not alone in it. Everyone has these things that they feel like maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should, is this right? Or is this not right? Mm. Um, and so there's, there's scripture around it and there's, you know, there's support and there's leadership tools all around that. So that's, that's in the beginning and the first couple of weeks um, groups do that. And then there's the four principles that are worked in um, for over the next couple of weeks. And so we talk about uh, living gratefully, living justly, living simply and living generously. 
And so each week there's, there's talk in scripture around what these ideas mean. And then groups talk about different ways to incorporate those into their lives. How do we learn to live gratefully? How do we learn to live justly? How do we learn to live more simply? And then how do we learn to live more generously? Hmm. And then um, the last few weeks focus on this idea of giving a collective gift. So as we free up some of our resources, learning to live more simply, um, the group talks about where they would like to give their resources as a group. And they bring ideas to the group um, of uh, local, international, national charities, They talk about the where's and the why's and the who's to give to. It's totally up to the group. There's no prescription from the study of where to give. Um, It's a group group idea. And then they can narrow it down. They can give to one place, two places. Again, it's not not, um, dictated by the study. And then they pool their money and they give a gift or multiple gifts. And the last week is a celebration of giving. Mm. And so that's one of the really impactful things about the study is this, this giving together and this idea of community giving. And there's a lot of really great stories that come out of the Lazarus groups um, about the collective gift and the impact of that, of what it means to give together and where the groups decide to give. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. That's sort of one of my last questions is about the success stories. Um, As you were talking about the four uh, principles, the uh, gratefulness, uh, living justly, simply, and and and, and generously. Um, I I work at a Sisters of Mercy school, and we have four core values: uh, mercy, justice, hospitality, and service. And and <laughs> so I can imagine if I were to um, lead a group like this at this school, I could sort of connect those uh, things and, and to give kind of familiar context to what you're pushing uh, or not pushing, but uh, you're emphasizing uh, in this uh, program. And so that, I think that's a really uh, wonderful, and I, I would imagine faith traditions across the spectrum could also find corollaries to things that they, they do value and, and, um, right. and connect it to this. I think that's really wonderful. Um, uh, any uh, more about the nuts and bolts? Or, uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, explanation, but, um, and you get this uh, via online uh, and there's a, a, a like a book, basically a PDF that you download and it, the curriculum yep. Bible verses and everything is right there. I looked through it and it looks pretty wonderful. Yep. It's all, it's all there. You can, we'll, we'll tell you at the end again, but you can go to our website. We'll tell you what it is and, and download it there. So. Yeah. And I will include this in the show notes uh, for the show. It'll be right on the description of the, uh, of the show on iTunes and everywhere else. Um, well, before we do go, um, I would love to hear some of these success stories. Uh, what are some accomplishments or things that you've experienced that you folks are particularly proud of? So it was funny when we were talking about that and looking at the questions you had, you had given us, it was like, it's hard to, to talk about success stories because one, <laughs> the problem we talked about is it's we don't even always know who's doing these groups and we'd love success stories. We'd be, love to be like a hundred groups are going right now, but we don't actually know. But one of the ways we measure success is just, um, is people who've done Lazarus and continue to, um, to interact with us at BFJ and continue to have stories to tell continue to um, to live the changes and the transformations that that they um, that they the ways in which they were transformed through Lazarus so there are some really great stories that have come out of the Lazarus studies um, you know things big and small things like things from um, you know people you know one woman who chose to um, sell her car and not not drive anymore and and be a bike rider which of course you can only do if you're probably a city liver it's not something everyone can do um but you know that was just something that she was convicted of just thought this is something i can do and this is the way i can simplify my life um 
and that's some you know a life which she continues to live or or someone who decided you know I can live on you know almost half my income and I can give away the rest and someone who continues to live that lifestyle um, and continues to give away that much of their income and you know that's lives that that continue to be lived that way and not that it isn't important to give a gift one time that's amazing and that's wonderful we love those stories too but for us the lives that are continually transformed um that's amazing and we just love to hear we love to interact with people who are continually transformed and continue to live that and then continue to spread that message um those are great to hear yeah, and I guess there's something paradoxical about my question about success stories because what you're right. what you're describing is redefining success. I mean, so in some ways, yep. what are your like unsuccess stories? Is what I'm asking. So someone mm-hmm. giving getting up giving up the car, which uh, we think of as an accomplishment, um, right. that is actually an accomplishment. Giving up that thing, which we had previously thought of as as uh, as something to strive for, uh, getting rid of it now becomes something to strive for. And and I guess that's one of the more difficult things to to wrap your mind around here. Um, yeah, go ahead. One thing that, yeah, one thing that, um, happened in a group that I participated in, which, which I found looking back on, I found it amazing was that, um, we went through the eight weeks of the study. We were essentially strangers in that group and we became, came together in community over the eight weeks. But then at the end we gave once and then we continued to meet every three months and then every six months for years afterwards to get, to continue to give. And that was a really powerful um, part of transformative experience in my life because it was this kind of constant celebration with these people who were prioritizing generosity. And I knew that it was coming. We'd get together for like a potluck party type of thing. We'd bring our thoughts about organizations and talk about, you know, our values and how we wanted to make the choice. We'd make the choice. We'd write the checks and we did it, you know regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it added up to, you know, thousands of, you know, probably something like 30 or $40,000 over the course of our time giving money away, which was really excellent. And the groups themselves decide what the targets for the charity is. This is sort of, yep. are there suggestions somewhere or nope. this is just an entirely, um, it, it could be it's local. It's totally open. Yeah. It could be local. Right. The group, go. the groups, the groups go through a process of, um, of determining their value, the values that they want to inform where they give. So they can decide whether they want it to be local or global. They can decide whether they want it to be uh, the organization to be faith-based or not. And, you know, what types of things they want to focus on. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've heard some interesting stories about, you know, groups planning on giving internationally and then having, there was one group that had a person in their church that whose car broke down and they were in desperate straits right at the time that this Lazarus group was happening and they were able to um, give money to that person plus another organization. And then there's another group um, at one point who, who were doing the Lazarus study near the time of the Haiti earthquake. And they were able to funnel a lot of money toward, toward that um, natural disaster. And so it's, it's, it's very personal. um, And it's also can be very timely. Yeah, the uh, I want to pick up where you said personal. Um, I, it was just occurring to me. Uh, I'm sure that mo- many, if not most, uh, churches have institutional ways to sort of address local needs and that sort of thing. And I, I happen to go to a Nazarene church right now, and and that's a giant denomination that has this giant missions arm. And so we give money to that missions arm, uh, which takes takes it and does its work with it, right? Um, 
and so I, I'm not suggesting that the church doesn't already, I don't think you guys are suggesting either that the church doesn't already take care of needs. It, but this is taking care of needs on a kind of personal level. This is sort of you taking, uh, it's bypassing the institutions uh, to, to some degree right. um, and, and taking personal responsibility. And, and I think that there's, that gets back to why this is a spiritual discipline. This isn't just um, paying into a fund. This is you adapting your lifestyle. Um, uh, and, and there's, of course, nothing to stop you from continuing to give to um, whatever fund your church um, uses. And I know the church I go to um, does a lot of great good in our local community um, through the um, through corporate will, right? But but it is still through that kind of official structure system, right? And so this is the unofficialness of this um, is what makes it, uh, I think, unique um, and, and interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to follow up on that at all. But, um. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly what you're saying. Like, it's not that we shouldn't continue to give to our churches and whatever way in which they interact with local and global communities that that are making a difference but this idea that it's also our personal responsibility and it's this idea of transformation transformative giving where we find out the things that we're passionate about which is what the groups do like what do you care about what touches your heart what how did the lord form you what's yours to do in the world like what you know what's the thing what's the good work that you're meant to do and how can you connect your giving to that because we think if you're giving to those things, you're more likely to keep giving and you're more likely to maybe start serving there and you're more likely to, to connect in those ways on a continual basis. So you're giving not just your, your treasure, but your talent and your time and it, it can become a way of life. So you're being generous with all of the things that the Lord's given you, not just your treasure. Um, and so it's this idea of transformative giving. You're being generous with everything that the Lord's given you. And that's where it's real generosity. And that's, that's become the lifestyle generosity. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, that's another, I don't, this is not to poke fun at this point, but uh, another contrast with the, the Dave Ramsey model, at least, which is, seems to me about individual empowerment. Um, and, and then if there's an overflow or when there's an overflow, that's when the generosity happens uh, at, at the end of that program and, and Someday we'll do that show, but um, but uh, this is from the beginning um, diminishing, reducing the individual um, and attaching it to a community, and, and I think that uh, with the intention of not financial peace, but <laughs> but financial uh, uh, uncertainty, right? Uh, but but that instability though is where the generosity uh, happens, and I think that that's. That's something that's really cool about what I what I see here, and and I was so intrigued when uh, uh, Kristen had brought you to my attention, and I was so happy that you guys were willing to come on the show to talk about it. It's been uh, just really illuminating and inspiring to, uh, to talk to you folks about this. Um, how can other people take part in this and or contribute to it? Is there fundraising or I don't know? Uh, I have no idea. Like, what what do you want to say here? <laughs> well, great. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have people. Uh, we're, we're glad if people are interested because um, this is all about starting a movement. It's all about starting a movement of, of financial and, and life generosity toward justice, toward creating a more just world. So if you want to go to this, to download the study, you can go to our website at www.bostonfaithjustice.org www.bostonfaithjustice.org and it's right on the homepage. You can enter your information and you can, you'll be taken or um, you'll get an email with a link to the study. Um, we're also glad to talk by phone about running a Lazarus group. If you're not local, we're glad if you're in the Boston area, we're glad to meet up with you and talk 
about running a group or um, kind of the ins and outs of them. And you can contact us through the contact page on our website. And there's our emails are on there as well. Um, there are names at bostonfaithjustice.org. And then um, if you want to know what the Boston Faith and Justice Network, which is what the Lazarus at the Gate curriculum is associated with, is doing, you can like us on Facebook, um, follow us on Twitter. And if you're local to the Boston area, you can participate in some of our events and workshops. We're always trying to bring Christians together to discuss finances and to discuss generosity, living more simply, living more justly um, in community. And so we host a number of events during the, um, during the year. Um, and we're doing, you know, as we we're doing an update to the study and we're happy for feedback. And if, if people do the study, we want your stories. We'd love to hear how you are impacted and what you end up giving to, how you end up interacting with the study. So we would love that kind of feedback from, from anyone that's interested. Yeah, we hope you track a little bit probably, right? Yeah, <laughs> they would. For future revisions. So. Uh, certainly, certainly. Yeah, and we're so thankful to uh, be on your show. It's so much fun to talk to you about this. Oh, well. Yeah, I, definitely. The pleasure is all mine. This was really, really, um, um, like I said, inspiring and enlightening. And, and it makes me think. Um, and it's, frankly, it's a little challenging. I, I, as I think about doing this myself, it's, it's a little intimidating, that first step particularly where you share your income and the things you're spending your money on. And, um, um, a, a little bit of shame is probably going to be involved in that, uh, for me, I have to say. And, uh, and you know, me being a Kafka guy, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's where I usually live. But, um, um, but yeah. And, and so, um, um, uh, but yeah, uh, so thank you so much for being on the show. Um, this was a, a terrific conversation and I really do encourage listeners to at least look into what they do and, and see if there's a way to sort of adapt, uh, the, the program to something that fits and suits your community. If there's a, uh, a particular need you identify in your community, this could be a really interesting way to address that need while building up the community that, uh, that you happen to inhabit. Um, and, and to, it sounds like there's a possibility of some lifetime friendships coming out of this as well. Um, well, uh, Krista Lee Chavala and Elizabeth Grady Harper, thanks again so much uh, for being on the show. Um, I will put up all these links on the show notes, uh, on the website and, uh, on our Facebook feed and Twitter and all that. And, uh, so you can, uh, easily follow up with them and, uh, and check it out if you're interested. And I, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, ladies, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it.